0: You're
1: listening to the Jolly Swagman podcast. Here's your host, Joe Walker.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen and swagettes, welcome back to the show. It has been a while. I feel like I was saying that only a little over six months ago after my last hiatus. As with the last hiatus, work responsibilities have kept me from podcasting up a storm, but it's wonderful to now be back in the saddle. Running and hosting this podcast is a singular privilege and so much fun as I think you're going to be able to tell from the next few conversations I will be releasing. This episode represents the beginning of season six of the show and our first episode of 2022. This year, my goal is to publish 20 timeless podcast episodes. Maybe more, we shall see. Some housekeeping items before I introduce this episode. First to everyone who has emailed or Twitter DM'd me while I've been on break. Thank you for your patience. I hope to reward it. Second, there has still been some great activity on the podcast front, even though I haven't been publishing episodes recently. I have a revamped website and a huge thanks is owed to the wonderful Pete Hartree for this. You can view the website at thejspod.com and there you can view episodes, transcripts and sign up for my weekend newsletter, which has continued going out every weekend, even during my podcast hiatuses. I've also set up a new studio for in-person podcast recordings. I recorded my first conversation there on the 9th of April. You can check out pictures of the studio on Twitter. My handle is at Joseph N. Walker. Finally, and as always, I love when you write in with ideas or to discuss episodes or, or things I've shared in my weekend newsletter. I've really enjoyed hearing from listeners over the past six months, and many such interactions have turned into real-life catch-ups, projects, and partnerships. I'm very lucky to have such a smart, thoughtful, and open-minded audience. And another one of my goals this year is to try to meet more of you in person, uh, including through some live events as well. If you ever want to get in touch touch with me, you can reach me at joe at thejspod.com. Let me introduce this episode, which I've titled against Bayesianism. This episode is basically about prediction, what kinds of predictions are illegitimate, what kinds are legitimate and where Bayesian updating is appropriate. This is not an episode about Bayes' Theorem, a wonderful tool that I use intuitively almost every day. The theorem, named after one of its progenitors, the Reverend Thomas Bayes, I say one of because Laplace actually discovered it independently and developed it into the form we use today, tells you how to update a prior belief in light of new information. It's straightforward and fairly well known, it goes like this, the probability of A given B is equal to the probability of B given A multiplied by the probability of A over the probability of B. This episode is not about that rule. Rather, it's about taking up that rule as a hammer and seeing too many things, including scientific theories, as nails. It's a podcast about Bayesianism. Applied to scientific theories, Bayesianism holds that In the words of my guest, rational credences, that is degrees of belief, obey the probability calculus, and that science is a process of finding theories with high rational credences, given the observations. Applied to decision-making, Bayesianism is, to quote Ken Binmore, the doctrine that Bayesian decision theory is always rational. Whether in philosophy or macroeconomics, science or decision-making, Bayes' rule rules. But in this episode, my guest attempts to dethrone Bayesianism. My guest is David Deutsch, a British physicist at the University of Oxford. David is widely regarded as the father of quantum computing. He's also the author of two books, The Fabric of Reality, published in 1997, and The Beginning of Infinity, published in 2011. They're extraordinary, zany, brilliant books. They're popular science books, but they're more than that. If you haven't read them. They would be close to the top of my reading list for a generalist slash optimist interested in the world of ideas and in improving the real world. Both are remarkable for the fact that, as many others have, have observed, they make original contributions to epistemology while being popular science books. It might seem like a quaint indulgence to be discussing epistemology and the philosophy of science at a time when Russia is visiting destruction upon Ukraine, and the prospect of a great power conflict feels more salient than at any point in the last few decades. But this podcast is really about progress and how to create it. Progress, scientific, technological, economic, may seem like an obvious good, but there is a growing counterculture hostile to it. I'm publishing this conversation now precisely because of, not despite, the horrors of current affairs, because I've never been more convinced that progress is the only thing keeping us from stumbling, sooner or later, into the abyss. I hope you enjoy the conversation. David Deutsch, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I wanted to focus in particular today on prediction and the types of predictions that we can make legitimately. I'd like to begin with a bit of context. I was hoping you could tell me about Charles Parkin and how he led you to Karl Popper.
1: Ah, Charlie Parkin. Yes. Well, he, he was my, um, tutor as they call them in Cambridge, which is misleading because tutors do anything except teach. Uh, So it's, it's, uh, I think that in Oxford, they used to call them moral tutor. But even that is misleading. It's basically a, a member of the college, whose job it is to kind of connect with, with the particular students that they're assigned to, and like be on their side. Like if, if they have some problem with the bureaucracy or with the university or with the college, then you would kind of, if you're in trouble or or just if you need something, you would go to the tutor. And there was a thing that, that um, you're supposed to go and see your tutor um, at the beginning and end of each term to kind of check in with them and, you know, they... Check that you're not on drugs and stuff, you know, like that. <laughs> and I never had anything to say to my tutor. And he was a historian, and which is, was, was not now, but was then pretty far from my interests. So I, um, uh, on one occasion, I had written this essay just for myself, uh, cause I'd read, um, Bertrand Russell's uh, History of Western Philosophy and another book and I was really taken with this idea of philosophy of science and I thought you know I'm I want to be a physicist and I want to do it right and you know so so I wrote this article about how um, uh, it's important to to do induction right as it says in in Bertrand Russell and I sent this to Charlie Parkins so that we would have something to talk about when I went to see him. And um, and he said, I remember this very well. He said, "Um, hmm, induction. Um, uh, Hasn't that been proved wrong by that Popper chappy? Um, Well, I'd only heard of Popper once before, which was from my mathematics teacher in school, but I'd I'd never followed up anything. And so uh, I said, oh, well, you know, I didn't know. Um, he said, induction is old hat now. Uh, so I, uh, I thought, well, if it's old hat, I need to know what new hat is. So I went out and, and b- bought a Popper book. Um, and, and that was the beginning of, beginning of um, a complete change of course in my philosophical life. And I believe you actually
0: met Popper, right? Can you tell me what that was like?
1: Yes. Uh, I, I met Popper once, unless you count one of his lectures that I went to, um, uh, where I didn't meet him personally. So I only met him personally once. I I I met, um, I met went to his home with um, my my boss, Bryce DeWitt, who also wanted to meet Popper, and um uh we went to his home and uh, we mainly wanted to tell him that um, although his philosophy was, you know, uh, amazing, groundbreaking, uh, 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 he, he'd got um, quantum theory completely wrong. And he, he hadn't even understood what the problem was, let alone what the solution was. And the solution was uh, Everett's Multiverse interpretation, or so-called interpretation, is it's a Everettian quantum theory, as we now prefer to call it, um, and uh, he just rejected that out of hand again for rather silly reasons. So we we uh, all, we discussed many things with him. But, but uh, among other things, we got round to discussing Everett and we explained it to him, you know, what the problem really was and uh, what he got wrong. And he listened incredibly carefully, asked all the right questions. Uh, you know, w- we'd been told he's intellectually very arrogant and he, he, he uh, shouts down opposition and so on. None of that. We, we found him incredibly, you know, Popperian in, in, his, <laughs> in his attitude to ideas. And uh, at the end, he said, uh, well, uh, and I, I've got a book in print now and, and I'm going to have to change one of the chapters, something like that. Uh, I'm going to have to make a radical change to something. I forget what it was. And uh, we thought wow, you know, we've we've kind of succeeded. But then when that book came out and I forget actually which book it was, he, he wrote several that mentioned quantum theory, but it it had none of that in it. It it was all back to his original view. So I guess he must have changed his mind. Uh, whereas in the heat of the moment, he uh, thought we had a point, but then thought, no, no, they don't have a point. So um, that was my my one and only meeting with Popper.
0: Yeah, did he show any engagement with the idea, or he just Complete completely engagement. glossed over it? Yes. Oh no! In in the book that he subsequently oh, published.
1: Oh uh, no, no. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, as far as I remember, anyway, the the only mentions are asides, and they were rather disparaging. Right.
0: So why was encountering popper such a, a pivotal moment in your intellectual development? Um,
1: it, it's hard to um, it's hard to express exactly why but um, for me personally, psychologically, I had... Uh, my idea of philosophy and the philosophy of science and what philosophy is for and what it can do, and so on, uh, like when I was in school and an undergraduate at first, uh, it, it was really the the everyday view of philosophy. and and when I read um, Russell, it was again the common sense view. Because induction is common sense. You know, if we see the sun rise every day, then then we think it's going to rise the following day as well. You know, is that that kind of thing. But if we see it not rise, then we know that there's something wrong with our theory that it'll rise every day. Uh, And that's what I thought. That's what Russell thought. And then when I read Popper, I saw that not only was that wrong, but... It took philosophy itself to a whole new level. It's it's like this is seriously this is uh, serious um, thinking about about what the truth of the of the matter really is, and so it was the seriousness of Popper which first got me, rather than the content. And it took me actually several years. I mean, I've been trying to think back from time to time how long it took me. Before the time when I would say, yes, I'm a Popperian, to the time when I actually got it, (laughs) I think it was about four years and several more Popper books.
0: When you say the seriousness of Popper, what makes someone serious in that respect?
1: Uh, Well, it's uh, again, it's very hard to describe in words, but it's it's following ideas through... um, and insisting that things make sense. So the uh, the trouble with the uh, theory of induction is that if, if if you follow through any strand of, like, how can this be, you end up with a problem, namely that it doesn't make sense. The, the philosophers call this the problem of induction. Uh, like the original problem of induction was... Uh, um, we, we see all these instances of things like sunrises and we, uh, we infer that the sun is going to rise again. But that inference is not logically valid. So logic had been developed to quite a high degree already in antiquity by Aristotle and, and people. And then even Aristotle already realized that this kind of inference is just not a valid inference. It doesn't follow. And uh, then, then, you know, people tried various ideas. OK, maybe it's not logically valid, but there's another form of reasoning, which you can call inductive reasoning. And that somehow makes sense. And that every attempt to make that make sense didn't work either. Mm-hmm. And, and then, uh, then I realized that, the, you know, this whole problem is a misconception because it's just not true that the future is like the past. Um, you know, the, the, the there's one thing about the future, <laughs> and this may come into prediction if you want to talk about that later, um, is that it's not like the past. It's never like the past. And then, well, the inductivists might say, well, yeah, but it's like the past in some ways. And it's, it's different from the past in other ways. So it's approximately like the past. And, you know, so none of that works. And what Popper did was he said, OK, uh, what are the assumptions that lead to this so-called problem, i.e., this so-called refutation? Sorry, this, this refutation of the whole theory. What are the um, assumptions behind it? which, one of which, one or more of which must be false. And uh, so he took seriously that there is something wrong with our theory of, not our theory of just scientific knowledge, but our theory of what knowledge is. And uh, knowledge had traditionally been thought, again, since antiquity, been thought of as what was later called justified true belief, so it, it's a kind of belief. Knowledge is a kind of belief and it's true and uh, it is justified. And then you, you can also modify that by saying it's uh, it's a form of belief that is is mostly true or it's a form of belief that's probably true or probably justified or partially justified. You know, where everything's been tried along those lines. And um, Popper realized that the argument, the the problem of induction actually implies that there's no such thing as justified knowledge in the first place and that we do not need knowledge to be justified in order to use it. Um, And uh, there is no process of justifying uh, a theory. So theories, according to Popper, are always conjecture. And thinking about theories is always criticism; it's never ju- a justificatory process. So it's it's always a a critical process. So, uh, as David Miller says, uh, a a theory doesn't need to have any special credentials to be allowed into science. It's it's a it's a conjecture. Any conjecture is allowed into science. But once it's into into science, it's then criticised. And when it's criticised uh, successfully, it is dropped. And uh, so that's that's the that's the that's where Popper begins. Then he, he, he has to answer all the questions, you know, why why? what's the rational reason for acting on theories and, and so on. But But once you've got the idea that you don't need justification, everything eventually falls into place and it falls into place in a structure that makes sense and it makes sense of science and even beyond science.
0: So his solution to the problem of induction was to sort of reframe it and say that justification isn't, needed in the first instance for for people wanting to read a good summary of his solution to the problem of induction would you agree that the first chapter of his book objective knowledge is probably the best place to go
1: yes many people say that i i um, i I think it where you should start with popper rather depends on where you're coming from uh, because his uh, what I've described is, is is his philosophy of science narrowly conceived, but he, he had a very broad uh, attack on on different areas of philosophy. Basically, all the same thing. It's it's all the idea of thinking of starting with problems rather than starting with um, you know starting with existing theories and criticizing them uh, rather than seeking justifications for theories. Um, some people come to Popper via his political philosophy, though he denied being a political philosopher. <laughs> uh, but he, but he was, uh, and he, he was the you know the greatest so far. Um, uh, so some people, some people um, actually back in Cambridge, it was very hard to find Popper books in in bookshops at the time, and uh, there was no internet. And uh, so, actually, the first one I read was um, *The Open Society and Its Enemies*, Volume Two. So, (laughs) you know, that's the only one I could find at first. And then, I then I found Volume One and read that too. And that that had uh, the only direct connection that that had with the philosophy of science was the in the underlying approach and that that's what attracted me and that's why you know I, I I looked further and tried to you know whenever I went into a bookshop I I um first looked for popper books in the philosophy of sec- philosophy section very rarely found one but i yeah i i think um objective knowledge is a, a good place to start or conjectures and refutations also other people find uh interesting um uh so yeah, uh, but but it it as I say, it depends where you're coming from.
0: Why do you think his books were so conspicuously absent from the the shelves of um Cambridge bookshops? Uh, I don't know
1: it, 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 there is a a mystery about poppers' like reception in the academic world. Um, uh, which I don't know about, and that, that's kind of the history of ideas, which which uh, I, I'm not an expert on, and I'd I'd rather I'm more interested in ideas than in the history of ideas. Uh, though yeah. sometimes the one is needed for for understanding the other. But but um, uh, uh, I know that Popper had great difficulty, especially with Oxford and Cambridge, but with with the academic world generally. And he would never have come to England, as I understand it, if it hadn't been for um, Hayek, who was a professor at the LSE, um, kind of uh, causing the LSE to create a professorship just for Popper Um in in the uh, in in way I think it was called a professor of the methodology of science, a professor of the scientific method, something like that. And his his uh, lectures famously began, and you you can find his first few lectures on the internet. The first one begins something like, um, uh, "I want to." Uh, Uh, I want to warn you that although I am called the professor of uh, scientific methodology, and I'm the only one in the British Empire, as he put it (laughs) at the time, um, uh, there is no such subject. There is no such thing as scientific methodology, uh, and so on. And and he goes on, you know, brilliantly from, from there on. That's great.
0: I've heard you recommend The Myth of the Framework as, as the best of his books, maybe not for beginners, but certainly for people who've already read a few of his books. Why do you recommend The Myth of the Framework in particular?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's not the book. It, so many of his books are collections of essays right. or lectures like or w- whatever. Knowledge. And the, the Myth of the Framework, the book, is, a, is such a collection. And w- mm. what I always recommend is the particular essay within that book called The Myth of the Framework. So the book right, is right. named after that one essay or that one chapter. Um, I think it's brilliant because it this uh, reaches out beyond philosophy of science, philosophy of politics, to just a, a general uh, attack on, I don't know what you would call it, uh, relativism, Uh, including postmodernism and and all sorts of bad ideas about ideas, uh, where the framework, the actual myth of the framework that he criticizes is that for, for two people to make progress in a discussion, it is important that they have an area of agreement and that they locate that and then work out from there to create agreement. Now, Popper attacks that idea from all directions. First of all, he says, the discussions uh, can be valuable and usually are even if you never reach agreement. And this this is, uh, I, I think, a crucial idea of Popper's because, uh, again, this idea that that um, the objective of a discussion is to reach agreement. is authoritarian. It's the mm-hmm. the idea is that you're you're creating together a kind of authority, a kind of uniformity. Um, whereas in fact, all we have is conjectures, and we are going to be wrong in various ways, and we're never going to arrive at the final truth because there's always improvements to be made, and when you um, when you have a, a public controversy, like people say, debates in parliament are useless because nobody ever changes their mind. Well, first of all, people do sometimes change their mind. But that is not the point. The point is that by having a debate, you improve you're not, you're, you, you don't improve your agreement necessarily with the other side, but you improve your understanding of the other side. You can, if you're right, you improve your own arguments so as to be better. And uh, if if you think about real life, you know, how people people changing their minds about things, you can very rarely remember a case where somebody has changed their mind during a debate. And yet, if you look at the big picture, if you look at opinion polls about, you know, would you live next to a person of the of a different race? You know, a generation ago, it's like 20% of people would, and now 95% of people would. And in that time... You can't find anybody who says, "Oh, right, now I've changed my mind about that," or hardly anybody. What has happened is that they cha- they changed their view. They changed their view on a larger scale and on a deeper scale, including, in the first instance, the type of reasons that they give themselves for their for their ideas. So as some somebody, I, I can't find this quote, but there's a marvelous quote by some moral philosopher saying the reason we need moral philosophy is that people change the reasons for their behavior before they change their behavior. That, that you know, you, you justify it in a different way. Now yeah. that you're justifying in a different and better way, even though you're justifying the same view and the same behavior as before, you're now changing. And eventually that will lead to your change, changing your actual behavior in that in that little way we were talking about. But you never see that because it happens as, as a result of a deeper shift. Um, so this in practice is what happens. And in theory, it, the theory of it is is um, was first understood, I think, by Popper, uh, and expressed in that essay.
0: That that quote you shared of the moral philosopher also reminds me of that great quote by John Stuart Mill: "He who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that." Right. <laughs> How do you define Bayesianism, and, and why, in your view, is Bayesianism a form of inductivism?
1: Right. Well, um, the word Bayesianism is used for a variety of things, uh, Mm -hmm. a whole spectrum of things, at one end of which uh, I have no quarrel with whatsoever, uh, and at the other end of which I I think is just plain inductivism. So at the good end, Bayesianism is uh, just a word for um, using uh, conditional probabilities correctly so if you want to know you know uh you you find that your um uh, your uh, milkman uh was born in the same small village as you and and uh, you know you 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 wondering what kind of a um uh, a coincidence that is and so on you you you've got to uh, look at the conditional probabilities like uh, rather than the absolute probabilities. so there 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 isn't just one chance in so many million but 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 there's a smaller chance and th- then what um, against what background of of uh, population are you taking this estimate of the chance and so on? So, you know, if you're not careful, you can end up uh, concluding that your milkman is actually stalking you and and that's because you've used probability wrongly. So that that is one end of the of the spectrum, which I have no quarrel with whatsoever. At The other end of the spectrum, a thing which is called Bayesianism is what I prefer to call Bayesian epistemology, because it's the epistemology that's wrong. Not, the, not Bayes' theorem. <laughs> Bayes' theorem is true enough. But uh, Bayesian epistemology is just the name of a mistake. It's, it's, um, it's uh, a species of inductivism and currently the most popular species. Um, so th- th- the idea of Bayesian epistemology is that, first of all, it, it, it completely swallows the justified true belief um, theory of knowledge. So it's saying, how do we increase our knowledge? Well, we increase, uh, we we increase our knowledge whenever we increase our credence for true theories. Credence is belief. Belief is, uh, according to Bayesian epistemology, um, measured by a measure that is basically a probability. In fact, all probabilities are supposed to be these beliefs. Um, which is another mistake, but never mind that for a moment. Uh, so, um, uh, so the idea of science and of thinking generally in Bayesian epistemology is that we're trying to increase our credence for true beliefs and decrease our credence for false beliefs. And so they use Bayes' theorem to show that when you encounter a true instance of a general theory, your, uh, and you use Bayes' theorem to, to calculate the new probability of that theory, the new credence for that theory, it has gone up. And so the basic plan of Bayesian epistemology is that that is how credences grow, go up. Um, and the way they go down is if you find a counterexample. So credences of theories go up when you find a confirming instance, and down when you find a disconfirming instance. And that just is inductivism. That, that is another way, it, it, it's, it's inductivism with a particular measure of how strongly you believe a theory and with a particular kind of framework for how you justify theories. You justify theories by uh, finding confirming instances. Um, so uh, that is a mistake because although it's true that the credence of a theory, so if theories had probabilities, which they don't, but if theories had probabilities, then the probability of a theory, probability or credence that in, in this, in this philosophy, you, they're identical, uh, they're synonymous. Um if you find a confirming instance, the reason your credence goes up is because um, because um, some of the theories that you that were previously consistent with the evidence are now ruled out, and so th- there's a deductive part of the of the theory that that uh, whose credence goes up. But if you if you if you ask apart from the deductions you can make, um, because the instances never imply the theory. So you you want to ask the part of the theory that's not implied logically by the evidence, why does our credence for that go up? Well, unfortunately, it goes down. And uh, that's the thing that Popper and Miller Approved um, in in the 1980s. And uh, I, I've been, I and uh, a colleague, uh, Matthias Leonardis, um, have been trying to write a paper uh, about this for several years to explain um, why this is so in, in more understandable terms. Unfortunately, Popper and Miller's uh, two papers on this are very uh, condensed and mathematical, and uh, they they use uh, they use a, a, a kind of a special terminology that they made up in order to prove this. So, so the the paper hasn't been taken on board, and we would like it to be taken on board, but we haven't yet managed to solve the problem, which evidently they didn't, of how to present this.
0: I'm curious. Are you aware of some of the? analogous critiques made of bayesian decision theory by people like ken binmore
1: uh no um i i i'm not aware of having any quarrel with bayesian decision theory except unless this is referring to its ambiguity uh that 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 you never know uh um, rather like the duham quine ambiguity in scientific reasoning if that's what you're referring to then i do know about it but i don't haven't specifically read about it
0: no so i think the best place to to start would be bin moore's book rational decisions but in the book he takes bayesianism to mean the doctrine that bayesian decision theory is always rational and he builds on leonard or jimmy savage's distinction between small and large worlds So, small worlds are worlds where you can, you know, look before you leap. Large worlds are worlds where you have to cross that bridge when you come to it, so to speak. And Savage argued, although everyone in, you know, say economics, macroeconomists seem to have forgotten this, that Bayesian decision theory is only applicable... Like it, it, it's only sensible in small worlds,
1: ah, but in large do, uh, worlds, uh, do you mean um, worlds where there's a finite number of things that you have propositions about? Therefore, when you find that one of them is true, you've actually made inroads into the into the whole set. Whereas for infinite exactly. things, you you never make any inroad into the whole set.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And, right. And I guess archetypal examples of large worlds are like high finance the macro economy etc et um and it just doesn't make sense to apply bayesian decision theory in in large worlds so bin moore has this um long kind of rant against bayesian decision theory but he argues that that bayesians are acting as if they've solved the problem of scientific induction even if they don't explicitly acknowledge that
1: um, I agree that they are, and I agree that that's, that's an error. So why is the
0: future of civilization unpredictable in principle?
1: Um, because future knowledge, because it's going to be affected by future knowledge, um, and future knowledge is unpredictable. So, uh, if if you if you think uh, well, the example I give uh, in in my book um, is is that uh, if you'd been trying to predict the future of um, of um, energy production in nineteen hundred, um, you wouldn't have included nuclear energy. Because uh, radioactivity had only just been discovered in 1900, and it wasn't known that it could be used to produce energy. So then, um, and, and there was no way of predicting that it was going nuclear energy was going to be discovered. Because if you had predicted that, that would be equivalent to already predicting it in 1900. So that's a logical contradiction. You 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 can't know knowledge that you don't know. So. Uh, now, suppose you'd been magically told that there would be uh, nuclear energy, then you you might have predicted that uh, okay, carbon dioxide is not going to build up in the atmosphere um, uh, because we will have by the mid of the middle of the um, 20th century we're going to have nuclear power and we won't have any use for fossil fuels or you know much less use for fossil fuels anymore, so so there won't be global warming. And so you, you could predict that there won't be global warming on the basis of the knowledge in best knowledge known in 1900. But it was not known in 1900 that in the mid 20th century, there would be an environmental movement that would stigmatize nuclear energy and so on. Uh, and, and so at, at each stage, you don't know what the future of knowledge. And but the, these examples illustrate that knowledge. Can be erroneous as well, so that that's, a, that's another thing that Popper took seriously, that false theories also contain knowledge, and uh, so this is um, uh, th- 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 this is a, a nice example to show that it's impossible to know the future that's going to be affected by knowledge. Now. Is the future, you know, which parts of the future are going to be affected by knowledge or not? Well, that's also unknowable. So, uh, you know, we we predict the orbit of Mars, but the orbit of Mars is, is only going to be, our prediction is only going to be correct if nothing intervenes. So, Human knowledge could intervene. We, we might create the knowledge to shift Mars and we might want to shift Mars for some reason or another. And in the next hundred years or thousand years or million years, we might want to do that. Uh, and whether we do it or not depends on the knowledge we create. And that knowledge, not just scientific knowledge, but also all other forms of knowledge, moral knowledge, uh, political knowledge, aesthetic knowledge, uh, all those might um affect the orbit of Mars in the future so but that doesn't mean that it's completely useless because uh to to uh try and predict anything um because we have explanations we have exp- so we, 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 we what I've just said is not just a a Conditional prediction. It's also an explanation because I've I've have been saying that it would need some um, extreme changes in the human condition for human knowledge to affect Mars. Whereas, if you talk about human knowledge affecting, let's say, the atmosphere, um, then then there's uh the 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 best explanatory theories we have are already that human knowledge is if affecting the atmosphere now and will affect it more in the future. Now that might be false. Both those things might be false, but every particular theory about how it can be false is subject criticism and has failed criticism. So our, our best explanatory theories about the future say that uh, the atmosphere is being affected and will be affected by more in the future. And we um, we can therefore conclude that given what we want from the atmosphere, we would we would do best to create the knowledge to make it change in the way we want. So is the key
0: point of differentiation between legitimate prediction and illegitimate prophecy that legitimate predictions rely on good
1: explanations? Exactly. And but, but their legitimate predictions are not justified knowledge. <laughs> they are they are conjectures just like everything else. It's just that they're rivals. Have failed criticism, which doesn't mean they're false. They have yeah. just failed criticism. And the rational way of proceeding is to proceed according to the best explanation.
0: And they are, of course, subject to disappointment. Yes. So for most of our species history, knowledge was sparse and grew slowly, if at all. Yes. Does this mean that that people could have made better predictions about the near futures of their societies than we can of ours? For example, would it have been easier for someone in Ming China to make predictions about the future of their civilization than it is for a 21st century American to make predictions about the future of the United States? Yes. And um, how, how could people in the past have known ex ante that their seemingly static circumstances endowed them with this predictive power without extrapolating their circumstances forward?
1: Um, the- Assumption was, it, it's not just any old prediction, it, it, the assumption was that nothing would change. Now, sooner or later, that, that um, assumption is going to be proved false. Uh, in almost all cases, it was proved false by the destruction of that society, that civilization. Almost all civilizations that have ever existed have been static until they were destroyed either by um, nature or by other humans. So um, whether you call that reliability of prediction or not, it is a matter of taste. You know, if, if you're in an empire that's, that in fact is going to last for 450 years uh, and you're at the 200 year mark and you, you predict, well, nothing's going to ever change then you can predict that, you know, your the kind of diseases that you have now are still going to be experienced by your great-great-grandchildren. Um, until you're wrong, you know, until it comes to the 400 year mark and your great-great-grandchildren are going to be, be, have it much, much worse than you or much, much better than you. So, Uh, It depends how you, how you, how you calibrate predictability in a static society. You can make predictions conditional on the survival of the static society. Whether or not, you know that that, that that you're making them conditionally Uh, in a dynamic society, it's much easier to see that uh, your predictions are. it's the other way around like given that your society is going to survive the future is opaque so
0: to come back to good explanations there are there are some quotes in the beginning of infinity that could potentially be misconstrued as prophecies so i just wanted to to give you the opportunity to clarify them so for example on page 455 of the paperback You talk about how humans will achieve immortality within the next few lifetimes. And I imagine that someone might pounce on that and say, ah, David's contradicting himself, that's a prophecy. But I suppose your retort would be that there's like a good explanation underlying that claim. Is that fair to say? Uh,
1: I can't remember the wording. It's it's perfectly possible that that I uh, worded it in a way that was either ambiguous or plain wrong. So, (laughs) if I said humans are going to solve this problem within uh, X years, then um, that is a prophecy and I shouldn't have put it that way. Now, uh, uh, if I said I expect this to happen, then that technically escapes the the criticism of (laughs) prophecy, but it depends on the context. If I expect is can can be taken in context to mean I predict, then it is a mistake and I shouldn't have said it. Um, but if it's a description of um, my my personal conjecture of what's going to happen, then it's accurate and and uh, I think it's so. It is based on an explanation, but the explanation is um, if a kind of a ne- in a negative form. At present, I see nothing in our in our existing best theories of biology that that suggest that um uh that there's a law of physics that says that the lifetime has to be has to have a particular finite limit. We know that there are organisms that don't have that limit so so that like like um most microorganisms and so on. And um, uh, the processes that we know that kill people are all of the form um, something goes wrong physically, which we can see and which we could undo if we had the knowledge. So it might not be true. It might be that there's some deep reason yet to be discovered why humans can never be immortal um uh, by immortal i mean uh, you know that uh, aging won't kill us but you know, something else might kill us um so uh, uh, all if that comment in my book said that nothing is known that 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 um mandates that then it's not prophecy but if I accidentally phrased it as a prophecy, then I'm wrong, uh, you know. Uh, uh, Popperians shouldn't be so embarrassed about being wrong as, as, uh, as, as many people That's
0: are. very, very honourable of you. One of my favourite uh, genres, David, is old books about the future. I like reading about how people in the past thought about the future. And I, I sort of collect these books mainly to remind myself not to prophesy. Um, But some of the ones I have sitting on my bookshelf downstairs are toward the year 2018, which was published in 1968. There's Lester Thoreau's book, Head to Head. He was an MIT, um, I think, political scientist. And it was a a 1993 book that envisioned Japan and Europe as America's great economic rivals in the 21st century, scarcely making mention of China. Um, There's Servan Schreiber's book, The American Challenge, which envisioned American growth, sort of continuing um, very aggressively into the 21st century. There is uh, Khan and Wiener's book, The Year 2000, which speculated on all of these future technologies that we would have. There is, of course, Ehrlich's The Population Bomb. There's Limits to Growth. Um, There's a book called The Coming War with Japan by Friedman and Labard. But I'm curious, do you have any of your own examples of of favourite examples of failed predictions or or doomsaying books that that turned out to be- are false.
1: Well, some of those uh, uh I I've actually read or at least seen um some of those that you mentioned. Uh others are completely new to me. I haven't heard of uh, many of them. Um I was recently rereading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and um
0: I'm not familiar with it.
1: Oh, Jules Verne a science fiction book uh, written about 1870, oh, right. something like okay. that. And uh, it's amazing the things he gets utterly wrong and and the things he gets amazingly correct. Um, You know, electric light, um, submarines, um, uh, and some of the things he he gets very, very wrong. I I saw there a a nice... um, uh, So Antarctica... It wasn't known at the time whether Antarctica was land or frozen sea, like the like uh, the Arctic region. So um, in this book, they go in a submarine and they go and try and find the South Pole to see if if it can be reached under the ice. And uh, he gives a wonderful argument for why uh, there must be a continent there and not just ice. And he says, um, near the South Pole, there are far more icebergs than there are near the North Pole. And icebergs can only form from glaciers, which are on land. The glaciers in the northern hemisphere form in places like Greenland and so on, but not in the Arctic itself. That's why there are fewer of them. And, and therefore, we must expect there to be an Antarctic uh, landmass. And wow. I thought, you know, that's just so typical of explanatory reasoning. There, there's no induction there. There's no, uh, you know, uh, we found continents everywhere else. Therefore, there should be one in, in Antarctica as well. It's an explanatory theory. It's, it's explaining the phenomenon of icebergs by something that absolutely isn't icebergs. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's a landmass in the, in the middle of the Southern Ocean that's never been discovered. And that's brilliant. And uh, I don't know whether it's even true. I don't know whether, you know, I haven't looked it up. <laughs> I don't know whether there are more icebergs in the southern hemisphere. Uh, I, I guess it must be true by the same argument. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, I, I, I now, uh, my best guess is that it is true. Um, so uh, you asked for examples of predictions or prophecies that turned out to be false. Well, well, I'm more impressed by the ones that turned out to be true. You know, they're, they're they, um, uh, oh yeah. Yes. He predicts that, um, that on the same trip, he predicts that in the future, um, hunting whales will be made illegal. And this is 1870, um, or something like that, um, so, uh, yeah, um, I think one thing that's happened is that between the 19th and 20th century, speculative fiction, science fiction uh, turned pessimistic. The, the 19th century was more optimistic. And when people speculated about the future, they're more likely to have been wrong um by overestimating progress than by underestimating it. In the 20th century, there was a sort of congealing of the intellectual climate into a a very rigid pessimism so that uh, uh, a a prediction or prophecy could only be taken seriously if it was negative. Um, So uh, there's another book I, I thought you might mention. Um, I don't know exactly when it was written, but I remember it coming out called Will the Soviet Union Survive Until 1984? Uh, and this was like in the 70s. And and his answer was no, or rather, you know, it will survive until approximately 1984, then it will collapse. I remember this being vilified Um Basically, on the grounds that it was sort of arrogant to assume that the West has it all right, and and the the um, uh, the, 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 the the there's nothing viable in the Soviet Soviet system, and this is just arrogance on our part, and so on. Where it's not true. The the book was just giving explanatory arguments about why this edifice could not survive, and he was only five years out. Um, uh, uh it turned out to be correct but he at the time was was um vilified
0: you you mentioned that switch from optimistic to pessimistic visions of the future you know where have you've, you've got in the first half of the 20th century like isaac asimov yeah. speculating about how wonderful the future could be and then By the second half of the 20th century, you've got, you know, movies like Terminator. And you mentioned that that shift may have been um, caused by this congealing intellectual environment around pessimism. Yes. Um, I'm not sure if I'm offering an alternative explanation or adding to what you've said, but what do you think of the idea that, that economic and... Productivity growth began to slow for whatever reason or reasons around, say, 1972, 73. And prior to that, where we had this amazing period of growth, people were kind of extrapolating that into the future. And so, it made sense to be talking about flying cars um, only a few decades away because people had just gone from, you know, almost nothing to electricity, telephones, radios, flight but when when that growth started to slow, the the pessimism kind of kicked in. Does that make sense to you?
1: I think that happened, but I I don't think uh, it, it's it's uh, how how can I put it? I uh, I don't think there's an inexorable uh, evolution in this thing. I, I think it happened because of specific mistakes that that got embedded in systems. Um, particularly uh, the academic world and, uh, uh, and um, government, governmental bureaucracy um, and from there into the wider society so that, uh, um, again, the idea that, uh, that, uh, how can I put it that that um, there's something wrong with aspiring to uh, make radical improvements that this is hubris or that this is dangerous or that this will inevitably have side effects um, th- this um, this idea, um, is very widespread that various versions of this idea are very widespread and they have caused, um, a slowdown in various areas. Of course, not in all areas. You've only got to look at, uh, computers to see that, that, uh, rapid improvement was happened during that entire so-called period of st- stagnation. Um, but, but many things, in in many areas, improvement drastically declined. So, declined not to zero, so we still have improvement all the time. But we don't have rapid improvement. We don't have um, rapid uh, game changes happening anymore. And I, I think that's completely unnecessary and could be turned round if people change their attitude.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, that's a very... ...optimistic interpretation, I would like to believe that, that that is true, that there's just something wrong in the culture. Yes. Um, some kind of, um, you know, mental um, mental problem, I guess, that we yeah. can sort of tweak and, and get ourselves back on track. That would be um, much better than thinking that we'd sort of somehow picked all the low-hanging fruits or something like that.
1: Yeah, no, it, it's it, right. That is the epitome of the wrong theory. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm a physicist, and so I, I, can, uh, I can judge that in the context of physics. People have said, and I, I think the prevailing view is that the reason physics, fundamental physics progress has slowed down is that we've picked all the low-hanging fruit. But that's not true. It's, there's, th- there's more low-hanging fruit than there ever was seen before. It's just that picking it is stigmatized. that
0: speculative fiction book from the 1870s you mentioned do do you remember the the author's explanation for why he thought whale hunting would be outlawed in the future
1: uh no i mean he says something like that that whales have large brains and uh something like that i i forget but but he was not at all opposed to uh hunting um, sea creatures or land creatures, you know, he he's quite quite okay with with um, with uh, that there's a scene where where they they have these, they they encounter these these uh, other predators who are going to prey on the whales and they, they're going basically literally make mincemeat of them. And he's he describes this in in gleeful <laughs> tones. <sighs> So, it's, it's not that he's against hunting. He's against whale right. hunting in particular.
0: Right. Interesting. So, for you, a good explanation is an explanation that is hard to vary while still explaining what it purports to explain. Yes. But hard to vary by what standard? Um,
1: ultimately, the standard is that... Um conjectures that have been put forward or which which are on the horizon for being put forward, have been refuted, and what's more, they have been refuted in such a way that um, they um, it, it's not just that the particular theories have been refuted, it's it's that their underlying assumption have have been argued away. When I say refuted, I meant in this context, uh, argued away that, that uh, nothing like that could happen. Because if we were to f- find somehow a theory with that property, that, for example, um, uh, that, that uh, in, in reality, um, the earth is flat, and that it, it just looks round because light travels in, a, in, in not in straight lines or something like that, then that would spoil all sorts of other explanations, which those theories, the flatter theories, do not address. And it, it, uh, it looks as though they can't address them. Now, just because it looks as though they can't address them doesn't mean they can't. But we can't switch to a theory that isn't a good explanation because a theory that isn't a good explanation is obviously false. It's like, you know, I'm not going to step into uh, the the path of moving traffic on the motorway because it looks as though I'd be mashed by the next car that's, that, that's uh, coming along. Now, it's no good saying, well, you might be wrong. Yes, of course I might be wrong. It might all be a hologram and everything, but I can't. Uh, it's not rational to make decisions on the basis of what might be true. It, it's rational to make decisions on the basis of what looks as though it's true in the sense that the contrary theory looks false. Um, yeah. Do you mind if I just make myself a cup of tea?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I might get a water while you're doing it.
1: Yeah, because my voice is going. So uh, <laughs> unless no unless I lubricate it, Uh, Right, I'm back. Great. Yes, you were saying?
0: Yes. A few more questions about prediction. So, in his book, The Precipice, the Australian philosopher Toby Ord takes a Bayesian approach to quantifying existential risks to humanity. He, he adds up the chance of various existential catastrophes befalling us in the next 100 years and reaches a rough overall estimate. The chance of an existential catastrophe befalling humanity in the next 100 years is one in six. Um, he stresses that it's not, you know, a precise estimate, but he thinks it's um, the right order of magnitude. And the one in six estimate takes into account our responses to escalating risks question for you david should we use base rates like that to estimate the probability of existential risks and help
1: prioritize which ones we address um basically absolutely not (laughs) um we should not uh but i have to qualify that by saying that uh in some cases um the probabilities uh can be known uh, because they are the, the the result of good explanations. So, uh, for example, um, we can calculate the probability um, that an asteroid from the asteroid belt um, will hit the Earth in in the next thousand years or something. Unfortunately, we can't. We don't know the probability that an asteroid from somewhere else, from the Oort cloud or or from somewhere outside the plane of the ecliptic or from elsewhere in the galaxy or from another galaxy. Uh, so we don't know any of those probabilities. There's no way of estimating them. So there is no way of using Bayesian uh, reasoning to address them. I should also say another caveat is that because of the grip that Bayesian epistemology has on the intellectual world at the moment, people often phrase good arguments in Bayesian terms in order to give them the appearance of, of being strong arguments. Whereas in fact, they are already strong arguments. Uh, they don't need Bayesianism to justify them. And so what you tend to get is a mixture of good arguments disguised as Bayesian epistemology with bad arguments that actually use Bayesian epistemology. Toby Ord's book, um, uh, I haven't read it all, uh, but it, it, it definitely makes this mistake of Bayesianism in both senses. That is, a lot of the book is good argument um, uh, and, and good proposals but but some of it is just um, uh, lost behind the the mist of prophecy.
0: Nick Bostrom's vulnerable world hypothesis is the hypothesis that there's some level of technology at which civilization almost certainly gets destroyed unless quite extraordinary and historically unprecedented degrees of pre- preventive policing or global governance are implemented. So, in simple terms. You know, the cost of destructive technologies fall and we have a diverse set of motivations in the population, like there'll always be a few crazy or malevolent people um, and it's a near inevitability that those people use those destructive technologies to destroy civilization. Are you familiar with Bostrom's vulnerable world hypothesis? uh, I
1: I disagree with both the conclusion and the argument. Um, Right. Um, though again, you know, Bostrom is a wonderful writer, and a lot of the things he says are very true. Uh, if if you've read his his letter from the future to the present, uh, that's the most uplifting thing I've ever read. I, I think, and, <laughs> and, and highly optimistic. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the the argument uh, about um, Technology and the dangers of technology is just wrong. So he has this uh, analogy of the of the urn from which one takes uh, white white beads and black beads. Occasionally there are black beads and the white ones are, and th- these are technological discoveries. And the white ones are ones that are beneficial and the black ones are the ones that destroy us. And sooner or later we're going to hit a black one and that uh, unless... We take drastic steps to make sure that, first of all, we take them out more rarely, and second, that we examine them very closely before before actually deploying them. And uh, I think this is a recipe for totalitarianism, but even worse, it's a recipe for, um, it's precisely a recipe for um, civilization to be destroyed. Um, because a civilization is only going to be rescued by rapid growth of knowledge, whether or not we take totalitarian, draconian steps to try to rein it in. Uh, In terms of the analogy, the mistake is that every time we take out a white um, bead, we reduce the number of black beads so the so the the probability calculation that's implicit in that in that metaphor is a mistake we become more resilient the more we know uh about especially fundamental knowledge uh, because fundamental knowledge can protect us from things that we don't yet know about uh un- unlike specifically directed knowledge which has less of that tendency so um uh, secondly it's not true that that um technology has made us more more vulnerable because um we are the, the our species depending on how you count species our species homo sapiens sapiens um is um the, the terminology is changing too fast to keep track of it but but you know the, <laughs> our species is one of uh six or eight or or, or maybe more species that that uh, had the capacity to uh, create explanatory knowledge we know that because uh, things like uh, campfires uh, require explanatory knowledge to to um, to form them. We know from the evolution of language, language must have been used before the structures in our throat adapted to make language um, evolved. It, It must have been the language use that made them evolve. It couldn't possibly have happened the other way around. So we know that all these other species existed in the past and were capable of what we are, namely creating new explanatory knowledge. And they are all extinct except us. And we know that our species almost went extinct at least once, but probably more than once uh, in our past as well. So um, uh, if, if we come nearer, every civilization before the civilization we called the West, uh, now, you know, technological civilization or every civilization before te- technological civilization was also destroyed. Some of them after 4000 years, but four th- I think that's the longest a civilization has ever survived, you, you know, depending on where you draw the line. But, you know, between its creation and what people regard as its destruction, destruction of the knowledge that kept it going. Um, that's nothing compared with the lifetime of a species. And uh, all those civilizations have been destroyed as well. And all of them could have been, all those species and all those civilizations could have been saved with just a little more knowledge by from our perspective, a little more knowledge about, about um, you know, hygiene to prevent... Uh, Plagues and and um, uh, farming and and um, irrigation and that kind of thing to prevent being destroyed by climate change and so on. So a small amount of knowledge would have saved them. And on the other hand, not a single civilization was destroyed through creating too much scientific knowledge. So that's never happened. So, so if you're going to be Bayesian, and or if you're going to pull these these uh, beads out of a hat, then even by that standard, um, we should be pulling them out faster, not slower. Now, uh, and as for the the idea that a small number of people could destroy civilization, well, yes, uh, but that's that's not the right measure. We have a small number of people who could work on things that could destroy civilization. But we have a large number of people that could be working on countermeasures. Now, you know, could be argued, and I think there's a very good argument for this, that we are not doing enough of that. That is, we're not doing enough to uh, counteract um, artificially caused pandemics, for example. Or as, as Carl Sagan uh, put it, uh, artificially caused um, meteor strikes. Now, and he said we shouldn't be developing the technology for fending off um, uh, asteroids or comets because it could also be used to destroy us. Now, I think that's a mistake. We should be developing that technology and we should be developing it faster. And again, this is something that's actually going in the right direction because, um, say, 20 years ago, the idea of an asteroid defense system was ridiculed. It was literally ridiculed and rejected just for being ridiculed. Whereas in that time, we have set up a rudimentary asteroid detection system, which can detect asteroids. And also there's been research into how to fend them off when we do detect them. Now, they will not fend off asteroids coming from a unexpected direction outside the plane of the uh, ecliptic, nor faster than we expect, you know, that we, we could be vulnerable to those just because we don't have a fleet of nuclear powered spaceships and we're going to be kicking ourselves if one of those heads towards us and we don't have the nuclear powered spaceships and it's going to take us more than, you know, whatever it is, a year to build them. Now, you know, I don't know what we could do if our lives depended on it. Uh, you know, we, we could we could uh, I, I guess we could do like we did with the present pandemic, we could do things that were thought impossible previously. But there's a level of things that we couldn't do. <laughs> and wow. and we should, we should be, if not making the fleet, we should be creating the knowledge to make the fleet of nuclear-powered spaceships and all sorts of other things. And as I said, the most important knowledge in this respect is... Fundamental knowledge, and fundamental knowledge is created by you know, things like fundamental science. Fundamental science has been held back by the phenomenon we discussed before—that the academic world uh, has been um, uh, trapped in a in a sort of sargasso sea of of uh, bad assumptions, which have. Um, de-emphasized fundamental research in favor of incremental research uh, and have uh, the science funding system uh, doesn't work and the the ref um, peer review system doesn't work and it it, it all goes together to um, increase the number of scientists um, doing things that won't save civilization and reduce, the number working on things uh, that will i wanted
0: to ask you this before but what practical steps would you take to improve the incentives for fundamental research over incremental
1: research um well i'm not an expert on science funding and the reason for that is that that uh, in part that that i have Tried to get away from the entire system, the entire academic system, from funding uh, down to uh, academic politics and so on. I, I don't have a position, an official position, at any university, and I'm not paid by by anybody to do research. I, uh, you know, I, I write my books and uh, and I'm I. I uh, I'm an honorary member of various things in Oxford University, but not a paid member. So I don't know how things are going. I only know the complaints that my colleagues raise. And they are all the same complaints that that um, uh, uh, funding um, is highly bureaucratic at the moment. So if you have a, an idea for some research you want to do, you've got to submit it to a committee. The, the committee consists of 20 people, none of whom are experts in fields close to yours. Or even if they are, they've, they've got a vested interest in not doing that kind of research, but in, in directing it towards their kind of research. Uh, Which is only natural. Now, it used to be, even in, you know, when I was a student, it used to be that research funding was not done in that way. Research funding, I don't know how the higher levels of it worked, but it was directed towards individual senior researchers and they disbursed the funds and chose their own um, graduate students and postdocs to do. The research that they thought was important. And those of them who thought that fundamental research was important didn't have like particular projects that they wanted. They, they were looking for young people who had ideas to do fundamental research. That, that was certainly true of the bosses that I had uh, when I was a student and when I was a postdoc. Now, that doesn't seem to exist anymore. Um, now, it's it's the scientific department that has its priorities and which tells the professors what to do. And the professors, we we had some ridiculous situations a couple of years ago where we wanted to hire, um, uh, well, one example was we wanted to hire a, a postdoc to uh, work on foundations of constructive theory. And the reason we wanted to hire him is that, that he had... Uh, He was the only person in the world who had proved a particular theorem and we wanted him to use his techniques. Anyway, it was impossible to hire him because we had to advertise his position and then make a case to the relevant committee. And what did they know about it? There is, you know, there wasn't a box on, on the form. There wasn't a there wasn't a box called constructor theory because constructor theory doesn't exist yet the the whole point was that we're trying to create this new field and the reason it doesn't exist yet is is that it's it may not exist at all it's a fundamental conjecture but it's a fundamental conjecture that is thought worthwhile by me and several other senior people that should be enough to fund something and the same thing has happened with with uh, graduate students and the, it's ridiculous by the way that that uh, in in at least in the parts of the funding system that i see um uh if you're a young person wanting to do research on a particular thing in a particular department you've got to apply to the funding for the funding in one place typically the government or some giant charity or something like that and to get into the department the, the, the department in a different place so you, you and so it can happen that the like, I, like in the example I gave that the department really wants you but there's no funding so sometimes the, 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 the senior people can arrange a weird arrangement where you're funded for one thing but you're really going to do another thing and and I, I think in general people who apply for grants nowadays are are playing a game. It you know, you're gaming the system. You're you're trying to tick as many of the boxes as you can, and you're trying to pretend that your research is directed towards those boxes, whereas it actually it only satisfies the boxes incidentally, and it's really directed towards something else that couldn't get funding. Now, you know, so I shouldn't go on and on about this because this is only a tiny facet of the overall problem. Um, people like um, uh, Michael Nielsen and Patrick Collison uh, have investigated the problem at a, at a deeper level, um, although they are inclined to, to – they have much more sympathy with the low-hanging fruit theory than, than it deserves – but at least they've gone into the the problem in a broader sense than I have. So, you know, you should ask them.
0: Yeah, there's also a great book by Donald Braben called Scientific Freedom. Have you come across that? No. I'd, I'd recommend uh, that to people as well. I think Stripe Press recently, um, Patrick Collison's um, publishing house, recently republished it. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm I'm just getting frustrated listening to you just feels like we're we're self-sabotaging as a species.
1: Yes. And and the um of course the bad guys have no such restrictions.
0: Right, there's an asymmetry. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But um, it really the the natural asymmetry is the other way around. You know that the good guys have a natural advantage in this game. But not if we hogtie ourselves. Exactly.
0: A couple more questions on prediction and probability. Yeah. Are you familiar with Phil Tetlock's research on forecasting? No. And no? Okay. Afraid not. I'll, I'll, I'll skip over that then. Do you have any explanations as to why frequencies in certain situations can be approximated by probabilities?
1: Yes. It's, it's because there is a, a, an underlying physical process. For for which, if we have good explanations of that process, we can uh, use frequencies to predict probabilities, but not otherwise. Mm -hmm. And the usual case is otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) That is, the, the usual case is that the frequencies are misleading, especially when something important depends on it.
0: Why do you think it took people so long to come up with probability theory? Humans were gambling long before Cardano. The maths isn't particularly difficult.
1: Oh, I think the maths is quite difficult. I mean, if you're going back to Cardano, um, uh, you know, it was it was only a couple of centuries before that that Europe switched from uh, Roman numerals and and uh, using uh, letters for algebra. So uh, you know, if if you look at uh, how people like Kepler expressed theories. It was it was amazingly uh, cumbersome. Um, But. People like Kepler, um, you know, people like Galileo were uh, taken down by the system, as it were, as it was then. So, as Bronowski says, uh, the, the, after Galileo, um, th- scientific research in southern Europe came to a dead stop, but it continued in in northern Europe, and then then we had Leibniz and and Newton and Descartes and so on, and they they had their problems with authorities, but but uh, they were relatively free to to pursue ideas and they had fundamental ideas. And, um, I, I don't think it's at all surprising that they didn't invent the, the probability theory wasn't invented earlier. Um, when probability theory was first invented, um, by Cardano and uh, Pascal and th- those people. Fermat. Um, uh, it, it wasn't misused. It, it it wasn't used in the same way as today. It, it was, I think, understood by all concerned that this was a theory of how to make a profit playing games, uh, where the process of randomizing was always part of the explanation of why you should take the fact that, you know, three aces have already been dealt that, that changes the probability of the fourth ace that 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 this was based on a physical understanding of the situation where uh, a randomized a randomizing process had approximated probabilities and nobody would have i think nobody would have tried to use this for predicting things like um you know, whether there's going to be another continent in in, in an uninhabited, uh, unexplored part of the world. They uh, they wouldn't have done that because they would have uh, they would only have been expecting probability to have these narrow range, this narrow range of uses. And it was only in the I I don't know, again, I'm not a historian of ideas, but I think it was only roughly the the middle of the 20th century when um, People like Jaynes and so on started advocating a much broader. No, no, it was before that. I I think there were there was already the beginnings of it in the 19th century. But anyway, a a much broader interpretation of probability, subjective interpretation of probability is, by the way, I haven't mentioned this. These bad interpretations of probability are all subjective, including Bayesian epistemology. They're, they're all thinking that probability is not an attribute of the pack of cards, it's an attribute of how we think of the, about the pack of cards. And that's a terrible mistake, which Popper attacks as well. Uh, I mean, he's he's against subjective interpretations of anything um, except psychology itself.
0: Speaking of, of subjective probabilities, and I know you are more interested in I- the ideas themselves than the history of ideas, but just... As an aside, um, people often go back to Frank Ramsey um, when thinking about the birth of subjective probability, but it was recently when reading Popper that- God, it was in objective knowledge. It was- So, it's for people who have the book, it's page 79 of objective knowledge. It's the, the second essay, Two Faces of Common Sense. But there's a footnote um, of Popper's. The theory is often ascribed to Frank Ramsey, but it can be found in Kant. Um, and I got to be excited when I read that because I, um, I do get a bit sidetracked, um, indulging in the history of ideas. Um, I, I agree with you that that it's, it's. I find it useful to the extent that it helps you understand the ideas themselves and kind of the the debate between different ideas, um, even if only as like a a memory device i suppose um and yeah i went back to um kant's critique of pure reason and sure enough in there he talks about using bets to quantify subjective probabilities oh really i didn't know all the way back to kant yeah yeah
1: Yeah, it's not surprising i guess because he was really into subjective interpretation of knowledge in general
0: yeah but um i was like wow that that's um a great pickup by by carl yeah (laughs) um so, uh, the the last question I wanted to ask you, David, was um, uh, really something I, I just started thinking while we've been talking. And that is, I wonder whether you see the cultural malaise that's been afflicting science um, and the, the kind of careerism and incrementalism as being at all a cause of the continued and perhaps increasing popularity of bayesian epistemology because i guess with bayesian epistemology you can kind of keep like tinkering with existing theories rather than coming up with fundamentally new ones
1: um so uh, sociology is another kind of thing that i'm not particularly interested (laughs) in you know I, i i i don't want to uh psychologize or second guess why people make the mistakes that they do. I I would rather th- think that um, Bayesian epistemology is just one facet of a much larger thing. Um, so it, it's not that Bayesianism has caused all the trouble in the world. It's that all the trouble in the world has caused Bayesian epistemology. Um, uh, however, it is striking that that Based in, in Bayesian epistemology, um, it's all about increasing the authority of a theory, which in the big picture is all about increasing authority, which means that there's, you know, let's follow the science as, as recently people have been saying about the pandemic mm. and so on, as if science had had some authority, had a moral authority or a finality or an indisputableness uh, about it. And at the same time, it undervalues, Bayesian epistemology, that is, undervalues criticism. Because the only kind of... So everything is focused in Bayesian epistemology in increasing our credence for something. And, okay, we have a refutation that reduces it to zero. So it's a kind of structureless... Um, conception of how um, theories can fail. Uh, the, uh, according to that theory, they, they fail all at once and when they are refuted by experiment. Whereas in reality, in the Popperian conception, science is in, it consists entirely of criticism or rather of conjecture, which is which is uh, a a thing that we don't know how to model, but uh, uh, theories don't have a source other than conjecture. And the whole rich um, content of scientific reasoning comes in criticism, a small part of which is inventing experiments and doing them. But most criticism is structural criticism of the theory qua explanation. And most theories are rejected for being bad explanations rather than actually refuted. And even when there is an apparent refutation, um, uh, we don't take it seriously unless there's an explanation for it. Again, my, my example I gave, gave in my book is the fast that was made when some people thought that they'd found neutrinos that travel faster than light and uh they they were thinking oh general relativity is refuted and 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 so on and uh actually the explanation was that that th- there was a faulty connector in in some of their <laughs> electronics and that was it that was that was the whole explanation for the for the neutrinos appearing to travel faster than light now um this is the duham quine uh Critique of science in general; it does not apply to Popperian epistemology, but it does apply to Bayesianism. Uh, And um, uh, because in Bayesianism, you never know whether there's uh, whether your credence for the integrity of the experiment should be reduced, or your credence for the theory should be reduced. Bayesianism, Bayesian epistemology doesn't give a criterion for which of those to choose and nor does Popperian epistemology, but Popperian epistemology has an alternative uh, uh, account of what you should be doing, Um, namely trying to find explanations. And then when you found the explanations, it's not that your probability or your credence for them changes, it's that uh, their rivals become bad explanations
0: And That's how we make progress. Yes. David Deutsch, thanks so much for your time.
1: Uh, It's been fun. Nice chatting.
0: Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. For show notes and the episode transcript, head to my website, thejspod.com. That's thejspod.com. Until next time, thank you for listening. Ciao.